Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. Today I speak with German-born musician, vocalist, and producer Thomas Barkey. We talk about his beginnings as a classically trained pianist and composer, his foray into the pop scene, his observations on the music business, and returning to his roots as a creative artist. We delve into many issues of the day, including the role of media in public perception, the perils and pluses of charisma, the polarization of opinion, and the solace of a connection to nature in troubling times. A wide-ranging and thought-provoking chat. I hope you enjoy it. Here's me and Thomas. Hello there, Thomas Barkey. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hello there, Dana. <laughs> It's a real treat to meet you because, of course, we have not yet met. We have mutual friends, um, Vicki Rose, who was my guest a couple of episodes ago, and, uh, and also Patty Wilderson. Right. That's, that's cool. Yeah. There are, there are many connections in the yoga world. It's always the way it is. <laughs> well, not only in the yoga world, in the world period, you know, yes. I think that people who have similar interests or paths or goals whatever you want to call it um tend to attract, attract each other in a way i think that's very true that's very true so i i wanted to uh to start from the beginning and um uh would you like to tell me a little bit about your beginnings and in hamburg was it hamburg germany yeah i was born uh in hamburg and grew up there um and um, I started my whole music uh, career, <laughs> or my, my interest in music started real early. Mm -hmm. Was um, it Bach? It was Johann Sebastian for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one of them, yeah. I mean, he's definitely a genius and uh, one of the founding fathers of so many things. Mm -hmm. What a lot of people don't know, for instance, Bach also, um, invented 
the uh, well-tempered uh, well-tempered tuning. Mm -hmm. um, if you know, for those who are not familiar with it, is uh, instruments tend when they're when they're tuned purely and perfectly. For instance, like a violin, um, when the intervals are exact, then they they tend to only work in certain keys. That means like. You know, it works in C and F, but it doesn't work in G. It sounds horribly wrong in G or D. And we're not used to this really sharp, clear tuning system anymore. But in the Baroque era, people would, you know, they would only play in a key or two. And so Bach wasn't happy with that. He wanted to play in all keys. And so he invented this, um, this tuning method that basically um, distributes the perfection or the imperfection equally across the keyboard or across the notes. So basically, none of the intervals are perfectly tuned and and clear, but they're all tempered. That means they're all stretched one way or another, and that way um, he could play in 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 all keys. So, which is um, which was revolutionary in the in the time at the time. For us now, it's you know it's it's normal to to play in all keys, but um, it's actually fun to uh, to tune instruments to one key only and play in that. I've I've toyed with that a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's so um, much more. It's like if you compare it to colors and vision, it's super high resolution and crystal clear. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, and you know, I don't want to get into like musical details here, but jazzy chords, you know, a major seven or a uh, or, or a seven uh, or a nine, those kind of chords tend to be mellow and pleasant when they're well tempered, but when they're in perfect pitch, um, they're really harsh and really um, they stand out. They're not pleasant to the ear. So anyways, Bach uh, invented that and um, called it the well-tempered piano. And that was one right. of his, you know, one of his greatest works. Mm -hmm. The well-tempered clavier. <laughs> the well-tempered clavier, they call it in German. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it was really cool. I, mean, I played a bunch of it as a kid. It's really difficult. Um, it's about two volumes of, you know, 150 pages each, I think. And it's very dense. He, he goes through each and every key and he starts with a pre prelude and then follows up with a fugue mm -hmm. which was you know the style at the time where you know one melody is leading and another melody follows in another key and so forth and there's you know one part two part three part and Bach was such a genius he could hear five completely different melody lines at the same time in his head and and would come up with a with an accompaniment for all of those so it's like imagine juggling five nights and they're constantly in the air. Yeah. So if you make one mistake, you cut yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and he was really, he was really uh, a genius. And, and that was the style of the time, counterpoint music. Um, and uh, it was groundbreaking, you know, um, to give you an example, uh, Frederick Chopin, the famous pianist, Polish pianist from the 1800s, mm -hmm. 
Bach wasn't very well known in those days um, in Chopin's time, but Chopin found the two volumes of uh, the well-tempered piano in some attic, and he just kind of looked, glanced at it, and you know, he himself was a genius, mm-hmm. and he rec- recognized Bach's genius right away, and was like, "Oh my God, this is amazing!" And he played the whole thing and memorized it, and just you know, I mean, for those who don't play piano, it's it's not easy. It's like you know, imagine poems with you know really difficult words, long poems, complex poems. And Chopin was able to memorize, like he just played it as a warm-up to his uh, to his shows or to his practice. He was able to memorize the whole 300 pages of dense score by the age of 19. Wow. Yeah. And he was, and he, and Chopin was, (laughs) he was a consumptive Poor guy had ill health his whole life, and he was so, yet he was so prolific, and he wrote so much. Yeah, he was a pretty sickly kind of fella, and um, but yeah, I guess also mentally plagued a little bit, but um, very, I mean, very big genius in my opinion, and um, he had a tremendous output, and what's you know, even more significant is not the quantity any composer puts out, but the originality. And that, I think, in art is the highest currency um, to develop something that stands apart and that is different than anything else that's out there. And so, you know, I mean, those those guys or women who... Um, who created original works, they basically just followed their own instinct and they didn't listen to the trends or the criticism of the, uh, you know, of the critics, of the reviewers. And I think this is, for any, any art form, a very important basic uh, character trait um, to be able to create something that is original and you know we all want to create that but few of us only go through the discomfort mm-hmm. of being rejected and ridiculed and laughed at you know i mean and, and i've i mean i've experienced that on, on on you know on a humble level with some of the artists i produce i did you know some somewhat groundbreaking original work in the in the yoga mantra chanting uh Kirtan genre and was one of the people who kind of, you know, gave that whole genre more of a song approach. And um, and I remember, you know, when we um, when we started out with uh, one of the artists I worked with, Sanatam Kar, mm-hmm. who was, um, you know, became quite successful. And I remember we were in a church somewhere in Sacramento, and <laughs> it was a 1500 seater. And only four four people showed up, and we had the full band, you know, five people band, sound system, lights, whatever, well, you know, whatever. And only four people showed up, and three of them went out. <laughs> I think one said, "Why do you have to keep repeating the same damn line all over again?" <laughs> yep, that's and then, what the mantra is. <laughs> yeah. Right, and then fast forward forward a few years. You know, uh, we played at the Barcelona uh, Congress Center in front of 5,000 people, 
with a trio and it was pretty much exactly the same set as, as years ago in Sacramento, but people were like on the edge of their seats and screaming. It was like a rock show, yeah. you know? I mean, I wasn't the star, I was, you know, supporter and producer. So I really didn't feel like I get I got sucked up by the uh, by the fame and 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 uh, you know by the ego side of things. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just like kind of smiling and and watching that whole thing unfold and thinking, wow, how is that possible? The same show yet such different response. Mm-hmm. Because people were ready. <laughs> in people were ready, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, uh, you know, so, and because we did something original with that particular thing, we were like the, you know, trend creator on, on some level, whereas there was a lot, you know, at that point, there were a lot of, you know, artists like referencing that as one of the originals and trying to sound like that or borrowing elements from that. And I'm not saying that, you know, it was like completely uh, groundbreaking new, but there was definitely an original uh, component to it that I, as a producer and musician, um, launched and helped create. And it was only possible because I had the right business setting um, to, to play with or to play in. And I also had the right artist, you know, Sonalam was really a great, great artist, very talented and very willing to experiment. And uh, it was just a good time, you know, it was one of the phases uh, in my life so far where things really flowed after some time. In the beginning, it didn't flow at all. It was like completely uh, unsuccessful and um, and um, yeah, not not flowing at all. Well, I did want to mention you in your grounding, your your classical grounding. You were in you're in a punk band in your twenties, right? Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> I mean, I just, in Japan, is that what happened? I tried it all. <laughs> I was playing drums in this band, and it was fun too. And uh, and I never had any drum lessons. I just kind of knew what to do and had some like raw talent for it. But I also, you know. I also didn't want to become a drummer, really. I, I mm -hmm. just wanted to kind of let the the angst out <laughs> at, the, at age 16. After I played, you know, classical piano for five years or so, and or six, and, and, and got really serious about, you know, wanting to do something with music. I, I really wanted to do something with music. I was clear that that was my path, but I didn't know where it would lead me. And um, I have kind of stayed flexible um, since, you know, and, and, and really try to go with the flow and go with where my intuition leads me next. And, and I think that's, you know, trying to be an artist, uh, that's one important aspect that you never know where it's gonna, how it's gonna take you to where you wanna go. It's like, there's that element of, of presence in the moment and um, willingness to listen to the signs on the road, <laughs> you know? And I've had many, like many variations of that. 
So was it your parents who guided you to piano and composition when you were a kid or was it you? Did you know instinctively? I knew instinctively. My parents uh, were supportive because they wanted to support me, mm-hmm. but they, they didn't want me to become a musician, never. I mean, my dad was a, a master mechanic and even though he tried to understand what I was doing, I think he never really did understand it. And and he had some, he took a liking towards music and had some talent, but, you know, if you want to do something with any art form, you have to have a wide range of skills, um, not even so much the technical ones. I think the emotional skills in the art are far more important and, uh, you know, you see it with people who uh, become famous by chance or they, you know, they slip into something that gets famous, you know, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. and they weren't really emotionally prepared and they quite quickly end up in trouble, which could mean, you know, destructive relationships, drugs, uh, self-destructive tendencies, all that. I mean, the list is so, I mean, especially here in Hollywood. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you don't even, I mean, after Blink, I mean, there's, you know, a large part of that artistic community in in acting um, deals with those issues, you know? They deal with those issues because they didn't have time or training to learn emotional skills the emotional skill set that is so important um, as an artist. Yeah, because the the fame thing becomes its own monster because it has nothing to do with the work. It's it's a thing that happens, and then, like you said, not everybody's grounded enough in their own talent and their own selves to be able to navigate, especially when they're very very young. Correct. When they're young, it's even more challenging. And often, uh, like we see it with child stars, you know, they function for so long and then they really slide. (laughs) I think of a Britney Spears as an example of that. You know, a person who was a child star, you know, talent debatable, but whatever, she became famous and a train wreck, unfortunately. yeah, you know, and I think people people quickly jump to laughing at her and uh, and thinking that she was a con artist of some sort. I, I disagree, you know, and I think that she really had something in the beginning and she was really, there was some real talent to do something very special that only she did in that particular flavor. Right. And I, you know, I respect people who um, who actually get to that point where the wave where they're where they're surfing the wave you know that build up under them and she did surf that wave for a while and yes you know I don't know her and I don't know her challenges and you know I don't really believe the media that is so quick to build somebody up and then pull the rug underneath them yeah from underneath them and destroy them completely, especially here in America, we're very, uh, very used to um, building people up and making them, turning them into hero, heroes, whether it's athletes or whether it's, it's artists or even politicians. 
And then we turn around and uh, destroy them with the same kind of might. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think that's just a cultural kind of habit or mechanism that we're used to, uh, you know, whether it's the O.J. Simpsons or the, I don't know, I mean, the, Mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the sports heroes that get caught cheating and then they become the evil devil you know right. whatever and and we don't even know what's true and what's not because the media certainly is not put a light on here uh the media is certainly not a reliable source of any of uh, of, of that information yeah they're certainly not and they're also there's a profit motive there's an advertising uh revenue motive with the media, unfortunately. So it's changed a lot in terms of what the media's role was many years ago, and now it has become something else. Right, it has become, uh, you know, often a means of commerce or, uh, you know, it's, I mean, often artists get used for, um, you know, commercial, um, purpose, but I'm not saying, you know, poor artists and, and the commercials are all bad. We need the commerce, you know, as artists, sure. we do need, we do need the commerce because I don't think that artists should be poor and I don't think artists should be pitied or they should suffer. Uh, you know, in fact, I think that real, real art happens when there's some sort of sponsor sponsorship where the artist get some sort of fuel to do what they want to do without struggling too much for survival. I think it's really a romantic uh, fairy tale to think that the more the artist struggles, uh, the better the work is, you know, I I don't think that actually pans out, you know, it's like there's a notion that, that, you know, that noble, uh, noble spiritual people have to be really poor or, artists have to have really bad heartbreaks in order to create something. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I I also, there was a time and or various times in history where there were patrons for artists, whether that be the church for, for Michelangelo Buonarroti or, or, uh, or uh, the, um, or the, the Royal court for someone like a Mozart. Um, you know, and, and that hasn't changed. It looks like it has changed, but if you dig a little deeper, uh, you know, even a Taylor Swift had the, uh, you know, had the, uh, had her dad as a protege who would, you know, hire the right manager, give, get her the right training, the right vocal uh, training, the right composition training, or, you know, the right company to entice her into becoming better as an artist. It hasn't really changed. Wherever there's really great art, uh, or um, where artists work, there is some sort of sponsorship happening. And you know, to be honest with you, I had a similar deal too with my, uh, you know, with when I did the uh, long line of productions for this um, Kirtan mantra. Uh, spiritual music genre. I had I had a really good business setup and that allowed me to do what I needed to do to, to do my to spend the time without working against the clock and without having to crank out something quickly. I had an awesome, awesome uh, 
business mentor who kept my, uh, you know, my space free from distractions and, and he let me do whatever I needed to do. And um, he's, you know, an artist in his own right. Uh, his name is Gorganesha. You know, one of the things that so many artists, whether they be musicians, painters, actors, whatever, so many of them don't have the benefit of business acumen or a business manager to help them to maximize their, um, their, 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 their opportunities, their talent and their income. And what a fantastic thing it would be if, if they did get that sort of training. Some do and many don't. Correct. And then there's many who um, make it as artists and they have a great uh, business mentor and then the, the business mentor turns out a crook, you know. Yep, runs away with the, with the profits. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you look at the Bruce Springsteen's and the yeah. uh, uh, Billy Joel and, you know, they had managers and then at some point they get, they sue them for $100 million. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I think, you know, you have to trust blindly at some level on some level but you you should never trust blindly on on every level right. and so i think as an artist we need to have faith and believe in what we do but we also have to learn to look behind to look past our blind spots or become aware that we have blind spots and we all have them you know i think you know some people have it in relationships some people have it with money some people have it with communication you know some people have it with business and promotion marketing and we can always learn more that's the thing i mean there's always room that's the beautiful thing about life is that there's always room for improvement there's always more that you can learn about something and then you can incorporate that into your practice and into your work and and, um, you know, there's, but I did want to ask you, it's very interesting because here you are a young man from Germany. How did you, how did you end up in Los Angeles in 92? Well, I had a career in, in Europe. Um, first of all, I started out with a classical thing and then I got into bands, jazz, pop, mm -hmm. composing, improv improvising, and I had some local success and uh, worked with bands and started to tour and perform locally first and then nationally, then internationally. And um, I got into a show band kind of thing, which was a Brazil show, which was like so far out. <laughs> a big band of 40 musicians and, and 15 to 20 girl dancers right out of Rio. Wow, and that, of, and that of course was like the kind of party that I wanted to be at at that age. Well, there's a lot of feathers yeah. and a lot of sequins and sparkly oh <laughs> in my early twenties, you know, and, uh, and and so we traveled all over Europe with that show, and um, I got the gig through coincidence. I was um, teaching piano, and I was teaching in some music school that was owned by the by the band leader and. And one of the guys comes up to me and says, hey, uh, can you go to Switzerland this weekend for me I, and, and sub and play? And I was like, 
well, play what? You know, and so I met with a band leader who uh, who was this old guy and uh, had been around and had recorded like 150 albums with his band or whatever. He was an arranger and uh, he says, yeah, um, basically you need to be able to play 300 songs by Saturday. <laughs> I was oh. like, whoa, that's a lot. Uh, and it was a lot of standards, you know, from the 50s, 60s, from the jazz era. Yeah. A lot of like, you know, jazz, American stuff, you mm -hmm. know, a lot of those, uh, you know, Glenn Millers and, and, and that, the classics, Puppets right? Your Eyes and Misty and... Right, all that. And then, and... Exactly. Plus a whole uh, standards of, of, you know, of the um, Samba Brazil shows, like the awesome fantastic music by Carlos Hobin and mm -hmm. uh you know I mean the, the all the all the standards yeah. <laughs> and I said oh wow I only got three days so I'm going to be studying this um and he says no no you can't take the the score with you it stays in my house you can only practice before the show I'm not giving this out because it was all handwritten scores like right, a right. binder <laughs> and there I was thinking oh my god how am I going to survive this and um, I traveled to Switzerland to my first show. And my my specialty, my, my my saving grace was that I was also singing a few numbers. And you know, I I was doing some well, I forget it was just some Beatles numbers or whatever. And that was well received. My playing was marginal at best because it was just the quantity was just overwhelming. And the keyboard player, the piano player, and that kind of orchestra had to really be good I mean this was not easy music you know it was not like something you could just do out of the hat you know and all these guys in the band they were like older and they had grown up with it and they were seasoned jazz players you know and little me was like just starting out with that stuff so but I stayed in the band and they liked me and because I was singing and I I, I then gradually learned to play all that repertoire and um and had such a good time traveling with this band and made some money too. I mean, this, mm -hmm. this job, I mean, in Europe, these kind of jobs were paid generously. It's not here in the U S um, that kind of stuff is not paid very well, but in, in Europe at the time, uh, I made a lot of money doing that stuff and I had a lot of fun. So I thought, wow, why would I go finish my college college degree when I can be traveling to Spain and to Italy and Portugal and be on stage in front of thousands of people with these, you know, beautiful musicians and beautiful dancers and have the time of my life yeah. and uh, make a good, you know, make a good living. And so, yeah, so that was my, my beginning as a, as a professional musician, a uh, musician, if you don't count the teaching that I did before. Mm -hmm. So it was and carnival every day. <laughs> kind of, yeah, for a while, for a while. And then I joined another um, another show band of, uh, of an, another orchestra that, that saw me and uh, wanted me and, uh, and I wanted to expand and, and did that for a while and really worked myself up relatively quickly to the, to the top of that profession. And then I realized that there was no room to do original stuff. I was just kind of copying this artist, that artist. And I got very depressed about it because my dream was to, to 
be a creator more than a copier, you know? And even though I, I strengthened my, uh, my chops and my, uh, my skills in this process, and I, I also, I, I did well financially, which was important to me. Um, I kind of didn't have the space to work on my own things. And even though it was just long weekends, like Friday, Saturday, Sunday of shows, I had the week, but I was so fried mentally, emotionally, artistically from doing these long sets, you know, I mean, these show bands, they were, you know, they were not like an hour and a half. They were more like eight hours of music. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We started, um, we started in the late afternoons and sometimes we went to 6am till 6am in the morning and some, some, uh, um, events were, you know, like total parties and people wanted to go on and they offered overtime at 3 a.m. and, you know, hey, and can you do another hour and another hour? And so it was really a lot of work. Um, and I decided that at the peak of all of that, that I was done with it. And from one day to the next, I completely pulled out of it to the upset of the, the band leaders, of course. I gave him some notice, but my decision was like made in a moment and I decided this was, wasn't working for me anymore. I needed space and time to work on my own stuff. And, um, and I never returned to that after that. And you had a yoga practice at this time or was this a little bit later? Um, no, I had a, well, I wouldn't say a, a, a regular yoga practice, but I, I had crossed paths with kundalini yoga when i was i think 17 mm -hmm. i had a friend who was in some group doing yoga and i had no idea what that was and they were kind of an offspring of the whole osho movement at the time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh and i went to some classes and it really resonated with me and i actually remember that i had two books in front of me one was by Osho and the other was by Yogi Bhajan and I both of them resonated with me but I went with the Osho crowd just because um it was accessible mm -hmm. the other was in the U.S. and far away and um and I started uh, practicing yoga and then that led to the opportunity to actually go on a six-month uh, or four-month retreat in India mm -hmm. And I think I was 18 uh, and I went and it was a great experience. And uh, it was way before people did retreats or yoga was popular. I mean, it wasn't really, nobody was doing it. But in fact, my parents and my friends thought I was, I had fallen for a cult <laughs> and they were like, you know, writing me off thinking I was lost. And I, but I wasn't in a cult, you know, I wasn't really following any cult leader. I never signed up with any of the cult leaders. Um, I only kind of took what resonated with me and I never gave up my individuality. And that's why, you know, I never signed up with any, anybody to, um, to tell me what to do and what to wear and what to say. And maybe I missed out on some of the, you know, uh, intensity of, of that process because of that, because I kept my kind of back door open. But I was also protected not to get involved with all the problems in, uh, that, you know, that, that come with, uh, with these kind of 
uh, I don't want to say cults, but uh, with people who are authoritarian mm-hmm. and uh, and are not transparent about their uh, financial or spiritual doings, mm-hmm. such as you know those kind of leaders, you know, and 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 I mean history is full of them, whether it's the Bikrams, the Oshos, the Yogi Bhajans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, honestly, I mean, I met Osho and he was an amazing guy. And I met Yogi Bhajan too, and, mm-hmm. you know, dealt with him and did business with his organization. And I, I honestly, I personally cannot say anything bad about him because uh, there was just magic uh, in the personalities and in the, uh, in the energy. And, you know, and uh, I mean, I feel really sad and sorry about the stuff that came out after his death. Mm-hmm. Um, but I personally never signed up to be part of that. And I never had these experiences uh, that, you know, a lot of people um, apparently had. And, and I have a lot of compassion for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it just really um, shows the the vulnerability of us humans to power mm-hmm. and, and, you know, how seductive those kind of, uh, when you get, when you, when you're admired or, and I've seen it working with artists, you know, the ego and I, with myself too. I'm, I don't, I don't want to say, Oh, that, that person's bad and I'm better. You know, I, I too had, uh, temptations, ego temptations with my, you know, in my career where I, was more of a front man and, and, and a leader and where I got, you know, opportunities and I felt like seduced by it. And I don't want to say I abused it, but certainly I found that it's an easy thing to fall into. Sure. It's, I mean, it's, it's a human, yeah, it's a human condition. You know, we, uh, I think anybody, um, or almost anybody put in that situation will abuse power to some degree. I think, and I, I really, don't, I don't really don't think it's something you can control by will, or you can't say, "Oh, I'm different." I, you know, if I was in that position, I would not fall for any of that. Don't kid yourself. I mean, we're humans, and and that stuff is so seductive and so easy to fall into. Well, and also too, if you happen to be somebody who's extremely charismatic. Um, your your temptations and your opportunities are vaster than someone who maybe doesn't have that that sort of pull kind of a thing. And so those people, you know, might fall a little faster. And, you know, like you said, human beings are human beings and they are complicated. And so with, you know, some of the bad stuff that comes out after the fact that we find out about whether whether it be the Bikrams or the Yogi Bhajans or, or whomever, or the Bhagwan who became Osho, there is also value in some of the things that they taught. So like you Completely. said, you take, you take what, what works and then discard the rest because it, people are not an either or, they are an and. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and Yogi Bhajan was a very charismatic guy and, and, and he had definitely, he definitely had to hook up to God and the universe. You know, what he did with it is another story. But I'm not here, I'm not one to be able to point the finger and say, this person is, I'm better than him or this person is, better, you know. 
uh, <laughs> the temptation once, you know, and then I've, I've watched it with, with myself on a small level. To give you an example, it's kind of funny. When I was, you know, starting out, I was carrying my own gear. I was doing my own driving. I was doing my own loading of stuff, you know. <laughs> and then the career get, got started. And although I found myself traveling first class and I had people carry my gear and I had people set up for me and for shows. And, and I found myself getting, you know, comfortable with that, but also edgy if something wasn't right. And at one point I found myself like, getting pissed at this roadie who didn't put my towel and my drink in the right place. <laughs> and I, I got like harsh and rude with him. <laughs> and I, I, I remember thinking that was, that wasn't, that wasn't right to, to be like that. <laughs> and the funny thing is soon thereafter, I found myself carrying my own gear again. <laughs> That's funny. And you're thinking, am I going to be one of those people who ask for only green M&Ms in the dressing room? <laughs> Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, 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 uh, that's exactly how it goes. And, and, you know, a lot of the artists I've worked with who, um, you know, elevated to uh, notoriety, <laughs> they displayed exactly that phenomenon. And but, you know, I think it's all all about awareness and noticing what, what what's around me and what, uh, you know, what's changing. And I, in that situation when, you know, when I fell back to lesser success after my first wave of career, um, I decided that should I ever have people carry my gear and drive me and, and all that, I will be really nice to them. And then the next time, uh, sure enough, I, I got, you know, I got the, the, the second and third round of, of success and I had people, um, carry my things and I made it a point to be extra nice to them and appreciate them for doing such a good service and and loving them for making my life better and easier there's yeah. really no reason reason to be harsh with with uh you know and, and if they do a bad job they'll eventually get fired right and that's and that's okay too that's the way of yeah. the world yeah you know if they make me look bad uh then they can't be on board you know right yeah there's a little wiggle room but you know you don't want to be uh driving on a nightliner with uh a chauffeur who's uh under drugs and and has an accident causes an accident you know it's got a like common sense you know i mean there is some wiggle room for everybody has a bad day or a bad week or whatever but the overall dynamics have to be matching and uh, and I've always been very um, strict about that with um, selecting musicians for uh, studio work you know um, if I select people who work for me in the studio they have to have a certain standard uh, and if they don't then I don't associate with them it has nothing to do with not being nice or uh, with being arrogant it's just you know I think as an artist, you have to claim your territory and your rightful space to to operate well. Mm -hmm. And you have to know what you want and um, what you're willing to settle for and what not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Boundaries, you know. Yeah, maintaining a certain standard and the integrity of the work. It has to be about the work and, and the product. 
And, and I did want to ask you too, um, you started doing your first um, sacred music back in, was it 2000? You, you were composing yeah. your own things and you started your own deal? Yeah. Um, so when I got to, you know, so I had record deals and a career in Europe. And when uh, first with the band and um, and later on as a solo artist, they had some record deal with uh, Sony. Mm -hmm. uh, and when that kind of that you know that had a wave of, of success and uh also a wave of failures and all that like it is an art you know nothing ever is one-dimensional but i got a glimpse you know i had some really interesting experiences for instance i got this call to play this festival in in uh stockholm sweden and found myself in front of 33,000 people open air. <laughs> it was just awesome. Wow. But it was also, it was also, it derailed me emotionally completely. And I could really see how difficult it is to maintain that kind of, to carry that kind of energy, to mm -hmm. have that in my life, you know, because when it's on stage, it's like, you know, a million volts, uh, power, you know, and then going back in the hotel room, it, it like evaporates into nothing and it's like it's a very big differential to um manage so energetically is it is it, is it the num is it just the sheer volume of humanity <laughs> that's in front of you that makes the difference it, it's the attention i think it's ah. the attention the attention causes directed attention and 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 that's like you know a very scientific uh, a phenomenon and uh, by the way i love the work of joe dispenza are you familiar with yes. him yes so he's really big on that you know and and uh awareness and attention are are very powerful energies and you know when one person looks at you a certain way you feel it but imagine thirty thousand people looking at you or adoring you in that moment or not liking you whatever that whatever mm -hmm. they do reaches uh has a consequence so that's um a difficult part to deal with as an artist you know and by the way you were saying some people are charismatic mm -hmm. to a large degree that is a learned uh, skill uh it seems like people have it or they don't but usually they have a talent for it but they develop it quickly and the ones who you know who tap into it they get very good at it and they become very, very charismatic wherever they go. But it's not that they have it or they don't. It's something that is learned and developed over time. Interesting. And yeah. And, so you and, don't just uh, pop out charismatic. No, you don't. No, no, you don't. It's a gradual <laughs> process that gets uh, cultivated and um, and it can show itself in being the shy, shining light in a, in a room when you enter, uh, but it also it can be um, the phenomenon of people being telegenic, photogenic, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, where they don't really look like much in the room, but then when they're on camera, yeah, there's something about them that causes that draws attention, like Marilyn Monroe is like that. Yes, they didn't they didn't know when they filmed her that she had it. 
or that she that that she drew that attention but then when they watched the yeah uh the footage they realized oh my god there's 20 girls and one of them is like the loudest on there even though she doesn't say a word yeah that's a phenomenon of you know of directing uh, focus and energy and it happens also um in 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 music with recording you know i've seen people when you sit next to them they sound like nothing and when they're recorded they're larger than life mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know i worked with one guy by the name of seal and yes. he's just like well, the moment he uh, he's on on microphone and uh recorded he he becomes larger than life and yeah. and uh I mean, I don't want to get into names so much. Right, of course. But the, uh, some people um, are just like that. They have that telegenic talent uh, acoustically, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and some people have it in film. Some some people have it on uh, on stills, where they pop out of a photo, you know, for some yeah. reason. And we don't know what it is, but it's. I think it's just a um, a way they direct focus and energy subconsciously for the most part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like sometimes, you know, there are actors and we know some people because we, we live in L.A., um, you know, who when you when you see them in person, they they kind of look like ordinary people. And then when they're up there on a screen, it's different. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. And um, but I think, you know, in the Joe Dispenza kind of sense, it's mm -hmm. also very scientific and, and can be measured and uh, explored objectively, but we just don't, we're not there yet. Like yeah. these kind of energetic uh, conditions, it, it's just something that's, you know, really coming into play in, to, uh, for humanity now, I think. And again, California is kind of leading it in some ways, um, like it did with you know, with Apple and yoga and spirituality. Mm -hmm. So there's something about the city, you know, of LA, yeah. that there's some, some sort of, I don't want to use the word portal, but there's some sort of geographic specialty that favors certain energetic developments. Wow, that sounds like yeah. a good sentence. And I, I also, you know, I, I, I do feel that's true. And on the other side of it, on the shadow side, LA can be a den of iniquity. <laughs> you know, oh my there's God. that energy too. So, oh my God, it can be this swamp of the swamps. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, we're going to move to Nashville. So we're going to get a swamp. Yes, yeah. Yeah, my yeah. fiance Brad Watson is a keyboardist, and um, you know he's done. He's lived here for thirty-four years, and we're just ready for something different, you know. And Nashville is a great place to be. Yeah, I have no. I mean, other than quickly, uh, briefly visited, I've never spent any time there. Oh my God! Wait, hang on one second. I got a, I got a truck in my driveway, <laughs> oh. ramming my my wall, but. Um, <laughs> Hopefully your wall is okay. <laughs> yeah, my wall is okay. Wait one second. Can 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 I? Yeah, I will pause. Continue. Here we go. We are we are resuming. Your your wall um, established that your wall is okay, and the truck is going okay. to be sent away. <laughs> I live in this cul-de-sac in a really really cool area in LA uh, of LA that is really doesn't feel like it's Los Angeles at all. It looks more like Tuscany. There's uh -huh. hills. It looks like Hollywood 
may, may have looked a hundred years ago. Oh, There's yes. very few houses and um, just hills and nature and uh, wild animals, mm -hmm. coyotes, snakes, tarantulas, uh, mountain lions, and mm -hmm. all sorts of creatures. And <laughs> it's just so cool. I mean, I, I, I'm so totally happy living in this in this space. And uh, and um, I think it's like one of the last few secrets in this in this whole LA area. Yeah, and and you know the thing is is that um, to to add to what you just said about being surrounded by nature. I think human beings naturally gravitate towards nature, even as even as we also destroy nature or or um, subvert it. Or um, we live in Koreatown, which is kind of a concrete jungle. So I know Koreatown, yeah. However, there is also nature to be seen in the sky and the and the flocks of crows that come and go during the day, in the right. early day and in the in the evening. And, but I think we naturally crave nature because nature allows us to recharge ourselves, allows us to uh, renew and regenerate. Very good. I agree with you. And, and if you think about it, what does nature really mean? I mean, nature is just some sort of unprocessed kind of uh, environment which our bodies are too. I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we may have all sorts of processes in us. Uh, and, you know, now with medical advancement, we can, you know, we can have second set of teeth or arms or knees, whatever, <laughs> yeah. and that's all great. But I think, you know, ultimately we're still very basic nature, you know, like breathing and, you know, we need the water, the air, the food. And um, even though there's a lot of wiggle room and flexibility, mm -hmm. ultimately, yeah, we are, we are nature, you know. We are, and I think that might be one reason why we have pets, is because they could be, yeah. Connect, you know, and you saw our little Chihuahua mix on the sofa there, and uh, you probably saw Jack the cat, the tuxedo gentleman who came striding out here earlier, and they remind us. Just slow down. They remind. Are they the greatest teachers? Ah, oh, wonderful! Yeah. Like they, sh like dogs know how to, and cats too, I guess. Yeah. They know how to relax. They sure do. Yeah. You they can... sure do. They know how to <laughs> unplug. And to restore their whole energies, and and we we you know at times I guess are not so good at it. We get like. We fall prey to the pushy being pushed around and trying to be productive 24 seven, especially in the cities, you know? Yes. Well, and I think also animals remind us to, to live in the moment because they're not worried about deadlines. They're not worried about a predator who isn't there. They're content to be fully engaged with you, fully engaged on their walk or fully engaged in playing. And it's such a You're so right. Wonder. They're totally in the moment. And uh, one fascinating phenomenon I have read about is that, for instance, an antelope that gets chased, that's grazing mm -hmm. quietly, peacefully, and then uh, gets chased by a um, by a lion or leopard. Yep. And uh, outruns him. Mm -hmm. um, 
which seems to be a pretty traumatic event, right? If you think, you know, you were just eating your, your lunch and now you're running for your life. Yeah. And, uh, and you almost died. But the, the interesting thing is that antelope will be completely relaxed 10 to 15 minutes after the incident. It doesn't replay it. Like you said, it's in the moment. Mm -hmm. It doesn't replay it and, you know, regenerate the fear, and which is something we do. You know, we, we think about, oh, my God, what if this deal goes wrong? Well, what am I going to do if this what doesn't if? work? What if? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, can, it, it can work to our advantage, too, depending on the questions we ask. But I found it interesting that this animal, uh, you know, is so in the moment and will, will be completely relaxed, like, the the death threat never happened yeah. 10 minutes later <laughs> there's there somebody who uh i i forget whether they were a psychologist or um or a biologist or something but they wrote a book i wish i could remember the person's name called zebras don't get ulcers right. and it was about that very thing about how animals you know you might be running for your life one second but then the threat's over and you're back to grazing again no big whoop <laughs> No I think there's definitely something to learn for us from that. Yeah, because fear can be very useful, very helpful. And if you're, say, being chased by a bull, you want to have that adrenaline to be able to jump over a fence. But then once it's over, you don't want to carry that with you. And you don't need to carry that with you the rest of your day. Oh, my God, I'm going to die. I'm so scared <laughs> I didn't get my booster shot yet. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what a, how am I going to survive Omicron? Right. Get my booster shot yet. Well, and, and also what we were talking about the media, how that feeds, 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 feeds that, you know, totally. instead of just instead of just presenting what happened today, it's all this, well, we don't know, we think maybe and da 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 and da da da, you know, and, and like you said, the, the commerce is a is a big uh, factor in, in this game and and you know especially with the vaccinations. I'm sure somebody's making a good buck off of that. Oh, oh big pharma, you don't need to worry about them. Creating <laughs> repeat clients, loyal repeat clients. So now every six months get a, get a new load of whatever they need to survive, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and that's a whole, that's a whole thing. And, and you know, I think, I think that we're going to find out five to 10 years from now what's really going on. <laughs> Right. eventually so you know um i i definitely have had an evolution in my thinking over the last couple of years and have questioned a lot of things that i believed innately and i've shifted in a lot of ways and it doesn't mean that i'm i'm one of them in air quotes it just means <laughs> that i am i'm able to challenge the narrative and say well, let's let's look at this. Let's let's see what's really going on. And um, oh, see, there's the cat. He's in beautiful the cat. Very beautiful. He's uh, he might have his claw stuck. Uh oh. Let me rescue him. Good boy. He, he was a little stuck. <laughs> yeah. No, I could see it. Um, that is very interesting. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh well, we were talking about the narratives and everything, and 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 the in the divisiveness that the media also again has. I have never seen in the United States 
I'm, I'm 52 years old. I've seen a bit. Um, and never in my entire life have I seen the amount of polarization between people and the, the lack of moderation and the middle. And I find it very distressing. Yeah. It, 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 I think it's a side effect uh, of the um, you know social media and the and the quick distribution of uh, of media pieces uh, before you know before there were a few main distribute distributors of papers and all that and it took a day but now it's like in seconds uh, these 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 waves appear and also I think we're trained to get bored with stuff quickly so you know one one drama leads to the next and. Um, it's really, um, you know, a lot of that I contribute to social media, which I think yes. uh, is the new smoking, you know. Um, it is. And what's interesting, um, there's a documentary called The Social Dilemma, which shows you how, say, a Facebook will have certain algorithms based upon what you like what you don't like, what you comment on, what you what what creates engagement for you, and it automatically will tailor what you see to that. And that right. is very scary because we're seeing a lot of people treat social media, Facebook in particular, maybe Twitter, maybe Instagram to some degree, they treat it as a news source. It is not right. a news source. It is right. it is uh, an entity that is trying to sell you stuff and find out what your preferences are. And then people get pulled into the rabbit hole of the comments and then it creates, and so that, and it divides people because they, they see that if you, if you don't check all the boxes that they think you should check, therefore you are on the other side. And you're absolutely right. Social media is a big, big reason for the division globally yeah i mean facebook knows uh your spouse better than you you know in most cases <laughs> because because they they uh, not only know their interests their financial interests their beliefs their fears mm -hmm. so yeah so um that can be um very much used for all sorts of things um and um i think that uh People believe that they are so free and uh, that they have so many choices, but uh, statistically, um, most people and everybody uses the internet, right. um, move in a very, very small bubble uh, or circle around their uh, internet habits. You know, they're, they're not really free because they get surfed uh, whatever they're in already. And it is a very, very small world, and it feels like, you know, there are so there are so many choices. There are not. Like people get really pushed into a, a more, more and more uh, narrow kind of box uh, with the, with the social media, with this, like you said, the um, associated um, um, demographic yeah. that uh, comes with that, and. Uh, and they think they're so free, but really they're living in little boxes on the hillside. And, and what's interesting too, is that we have these, I call them the magic lanterns that we have in our pockets. And people are so fascinated by screens 
that, um, and you see people, you know, you, you go to a restaurant and you see people sitting at a table together and what are they mm -hmm. doing? They're taking pictures of their food and they're, and they're texting people and, and you think, what? Or they're texting each other. <laughs> or they're texting each other across the table and you think- If they want to send some, some attention, they have to text each other oh. because if they talk, they won't, they won't listen. But you know, anyways, I mean, that's, that's the addictive side of uh, screens yes. and social media. I am very much, uh, um, you know, I don't want to say, yeah, I'm probably addicted to screens too. I mean, in, in my musical uh, journey, I, I was one of the first to use digital technology. And that was one item that enabled me to do things that other people couldn't do, huh? like traditional technologies. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't participate in social media at all. I don't really ever go on Facebook. I don't do Instagram. I mean, and that way, I mean, I'm keeping myself a little bit out of that loop, but probably missing out on, on some of the good well, <laughs> things I have, on it. I have a rule for myself, which is um, if it's not uh, beautiful, funny, inspiring, or um, really interesting it doesn't go up and i don't post anything to do with politics with covid with race relations nothing zero zip i am out of that i i, I put up a lot of animal pictures i also promote the podcast and i also do wellness coaching so it's wellness related stuff and like anything social media is a tool it, it is a tool and it's great. I mean, it's great. Yeah. It has great possibilities and this yeah. technology. I mean, uh, the digital technology enabled me to, uh, to do really cool things artistically. And um, I, I see, you know, it has done so much for artists when, you know, when being a music artist was such a privilege in the 90s or 80s or 70s. Yeah. And you had to spend $350,000 in, in those days money to get a get an album recorded uh, and you know there were only 10 a year who could do it you know the rest yeah. was like just jamming uh with their guitars around the campfire and, and, and now everybody can be their own artist and can be their own you know express themselves and be on spotify and and develop their own following and community um and there's a lot of great 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 uh upsides to it you know, I just, I get saturated with the, you know, with the addictive side of it. It's really addictive, I believe. And it's, it's really the new crack, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it also, one of the pluses is if you are a small business, you can have a presence. Whereas in the old days, you only had a presence if you had the marketing budget to put yourself out there, the advertising budget, whereas now, a mom and pop place can have a website and pop up in a Google search, just like the big guys. So there is some equalization that happens. And there's also, you know, myriad downsides. So like the, um, like the charismatic <laughs> uh, teachers and gurus of the ages, they're, they're an and, technology is an and. It's, it's not right. good or bad, it's, it's, there's, it's like we, um, like we said at the beginning of our conversation, uh, the, you know, being a prodigy, having a, uh, you know, having, having a sponsor and uh, the artistic landscape 
really hasn't changed over over the over the eons all that much i think the there's new opportunities and then there's new challenges but uh you know it wasn't easy in the 80s to be uh, to be visible and it's not easy to be visible now if you want right. to market yourself and stand out and and find people that appreciate your art um you got to have some sort of uh, marketing muscle and and strategy to um to achieve that you know and and i see uh the independent artists who are good at that they succeed or the the artists who are able to find somebody to do that for them mm-hmm. um they also succeed you know like my career was always best when i had somebody really good at that stuff and i personally i'm really um you know i i have some creativity on that level but i i'm not i'm not a retail sales person i can't right. <laughs> something it's not something i do well and i'm not talking down and I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, not, i'm not looking down on it uh I appreciate anybody who, you know, who does that for me or who who does it well for themselves. Yeah. And it's a real um, skill. It's a it's real, a real skill. skill. And in the old days, you know, you would go um play at the market, you know, farmers market, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and there's always been the challenges, you know, in the 60s, 70s, I mean, and even 100 years ago, you know, 200 years ago, there were always challenges and and you know the creative artists they find ways to maneuver to find some alliance and uh to utilize the whatever possibilities there are whether it's the kings and queens or the social media they yeah. they utilize it as as leverage right in some way and it's always possible to do something you know mm-hmm. and 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 markets change you know markets change i mean Uh, if you're um, a beautiful uh, manufacturer of horse carriages, uh, you had no business when the cars came around, no matter how beautiful they were. That's and, right. And uh, you know, the, if you were a great um, developer of photographic films like Kodak, mm-hmm. you know, you have no business if you didn't if you didn't uh, pick up with the pace of digital revolution. You're a dinosaur. You're dead. I think of uh, actually um what came to mind when you mentioned the um the horse carriages I think of a company like Hermès who went from horse carriages outfitting horse carriages to luxury goods scarves right. perfumes all that they adapted <laughs> which is phenomenal Yeah and and that's something that you know artists uh who you know keep on um producing works they will do that you know and and businesses too you know if you want to uh if you want to be in business you've got to adjust to the marketplace to some degree and 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 watch what's going on uh you know things change and that's just um one of the basics <laughs> or or if you're somebody like say a David Bowie you go ahead and make an album with tin machine whether anybody buys it or not because you can because you love to do it and but you already have the the fame and the money from all the other stuff from all the popular stuff so i i always really right. admire him as an artist uh he was great and i ha- i was fortunate enough to meet him i i met him a couple of times because uh my producer at the time in england by the name of Colin Thurston 
-hmm. produced his album or co-produced his album Heroes. Yes. And so that uh, uh, so that was a connection. And and the, this guy Colin produced me in the eighties or nine early nineties, late eighties I think. Mm -hmm. And so I I got to meet David Bowie a couple of times, and he was such a super funny guy with a, a, a some sort of a I mean the driest humor you could ever imagine I mean the guy was really funny he was mm -hmm. super funny and and you know somebody who would do extreme things you know who would not care about people's rejection or people's response to his art he would just do what he felt like needed to be done by him. And um, it's very, very um, talented guy, I think. There was an interview with him in the mid nineties where he talks about the internet and the interviewer said, well, it's just kind of a passing thing, isn't it? It's not a big deal. It just, you know, changes some things. And David says, no, no, this is revolutionary. It's going to change everything. It's going to change it commerce. It's going to change um, publishing. It's going to change the music industry. It's going to change everything we know. And there he was, and awesome. I think it was 1995, saying just yeah. that. A visionary. He was a visionary, and uh, of course, you know, he saw what what was possible with it. And then also seeing the creative opportunities that this technology offered and how to play with it and how to mm -hmm. make something out of it. By the way, Osho was somebody who in the eighties was like hinting at that, who saw what was coming, you know, who was also tapped into that and, 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 and said, this is gonna change the world. Everything's gonna be different with it. Mm -hmm. And he was right too, you know, I mean, it's like, yeah, visionaries. Wow, well, uh, we have we have gone from the uh, the Baroque era with with uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, and we have gone all the way around to uh, the, the the visionary uh, the visionary nature of David Bowie and the future of technology. Are you are you what are you what are you working on now? What is what is next for you? Um, I'm going into a phase where I'm going back to music for joy and fulfillment where I'm not compromising to go where the work is, but I'm going where the, the joy is. And, and, you know, that's how I started out. And that's uh, where I'm going back. I'm, I'm experimenting with some producers from uh, South America to uh, collaborate with. And um, I just wanna, you know, uh, just want to sing and write and kind of um, be creative. That's my that's my kind of goal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I I really want to thank you for your time today because this has been a really wonderful. Thank time. you. This has been really interesting, and I you know I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but um, uh, very I just kind of trusted, and uh, and I'm glad I did. It was very pleasure. Great Thank pleasure you. to talk with you. And that was the fabulous Thomas Barkey. Thank you so much to Thomas for his time today. And thank you so much to you, my listeners, for taking the time out of your day to 
listen to this talk. A special treat for you in just a few seconds. A new track from Thomas called Moments of Grace. You can find all of his music on Spotify. And I hope that you will delve into his collection because he has some really amazing and beautiful stuff. Take good care of yourselves. Take good care of each other. And as always, I will see you on the other side. Thank you for listening. Here's Moments of Grace. The divine 